0: Hey everybody. On today's episode of still to be determined, we're going to be talking about how we can store energy as heat and why this is a growing energy storage solution. As usual, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I read write some sci-fi, I read some stuff for kids and I play the role of host and lead questioner here on still to be determined. And I'm sure some of you who might be new are questioning me as far as who do I question? <laughs> well, I question Matt. Yes, it's that Matt of Undecided with Matt Farrell, which gets all these conversations started. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. It's been a sudden spring into spring here in New York City where temperatures skyrocketed. I understand up in your neck of the woods, it actually hit 90. Yeah, it got up into 90 degrees. That's
1: the week before it was like 40, 50 degrees.
0: Yeah. I was recently traveling with my family and on the way back from our trip to Washington, DC, where it was a balmy 85 degrees on the days we were there, I turned to my son and said, when we're getting home, we're putting your air conditioner in your window. His room <laughs> was reaching almost 85 degrees in by ten thirty in the morning uh, when we got back. And so oh, man. yeah, yeah. And so I put it in the AC and immediately the temperature dropped and now his room is too cold. Comfortable. No, so, yeah, maybe a <laughs> little, maybe a little chilly <laughs> climate change folks. Hold on. It's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> yes. Strap yourself in, which is one of the reasons why we talk about what we talk about here on this channel. We talk about sustainable storage solutions for energy and also energy production techniques. And normally we jump off of Matt's most recent videos into our conversation, but this week we're doing things a little differently. Aren't we Matt? Yes, we are. We're doing it very differently. We're doing things differently (laughs) because Matt decided to be lazy. No, that's not true. That's right. (laughs) Matt, do you wanna explain a little bit as to why we are currently waiting into a non-existent video discussion? (laughs) Well, for one thing, it's like, I'm,
1: I'm going on a big trip. So I'm I'm going to the UK to do a whole bunch of stuff. And so in preparation of that, Sean and I are recording. A bunch of episodes getting ahead. So of course we're now out of sync with Undecided. But also I get a chance to interview a lot of people from around different industries that I interview them sometimes on background. Sometimes it's I'm thinking of doing a video around uh that a topic that they currently work in, but I don't work them into a full-time video at some point. So it's like this is an interview today. I we did an interview with the CEO of Antora Energy, which is a thermal energy storage system that's based out in California and they're a really cool company. They have a really interesting kind of technology that they're developing for thermal energy storage. And I haven't had a chance to make a a video around what they're doing yet, but I thought it'd be fun to share that full interview here on the show.
0: It should prove interesting. And just to share some insights into what leads into this conversation that Matt had with this gentleman from the energy company, some comments on some previous episodes that are related to this idea, like these from still to be determined number one fifty-two. this comment by Daniel Boger, who wrote the technology connections, YouTube channel did a video a while back where he talked about how in the summer he uses his house like a battery and cools it down fairly cold at night. When it takes less energy to cool the house, then he doesn't need to run his AC during the day. That seems like the kind of the other side of the same coin for this technology, but on an individual scale that doesn't require remodeling. There was also this from Siebert 90 who wrote, what I like about district heating is that you can throw in multiple heat sources in a single distribution network. Like I know from Vienna, Austria, they use heat from waste incineration, biomass, geothermal, and heat losses of gas power plants, which raises their overall efficiency in the summer. They also use that excess heat for district cooling with absorption refrigerators. Yeah. I think you meant excess, not access, but (laughs) that is true. And here I am reading, I am Ron Burgundy right off of the prompter without (laughs) even.
1: Yeah. I, I love both of those comments, especially the one about technology connections, because you have to shift how we think about heat, because there are things that we do in our daily lives that we can just shift how we're doing things just by it's cooler overnight. So why are we not just like super cooling our homes and letting that cool kind of just like slowly go away over the hot part of the day. And then you're saving so much more energy by how you're heating and cooling your home. And the same thing with our water heaters, our water heaters are basically just heat batteries inside of water. So it's like, we don't have to have them heating all the time or heating at certain periods of the day. We can be a little smarter about how we're doing this and take advantage of how heat flows and how heat works. It's a
0: very smart approach. Yeah. There were also other comments from an earlier video. This one goes back to January 25th, 2023, our conversation about how a brick and rock battery is changing energy storage. There was this from Thal Aquatics who wrote similar technology has been used in the glass industry for a long time. We call them checker packs. The structure they are in are called regenerators. The exhaust of the furnace goes through them, heats up and then we switch directions and the intake combustion air comes through the checker packs to get preheated, saves tons of gas. It's I like that there being heat that is captured and then is preheating something that needs to be at a temperature that is far greater than it will ever get in the preheating stage, but every little bit helps. So that's a great use of residual heat. And there was finally this form what were you gonna say? I
1: was gonna, that actually makes me think of ERV systems on homes, energy recovery ventilators on homes. Like I'm gonna have on my new house where it's, it's taking the, the warm inside air and as it's exhausting it out to bring in fresh air, that warm air is heat preheating the cool air that's coming in so that you don't lose all that heat that you've, you've pumped inside of your house to keep it nice and warm. It's a very similar concept just at a
0: industrial scale. Yeah. <laughs> which is also what Matt Gorman Smith is talking about in the last comment we were going to share where he writes that 1500 degrees Celsius air would still be useful for steel making or higher temperature applications. You'd preheat the charge to 1500 Celsius, then finish it off with much less gas electricity. So there's applications across industries here of capturing, storing, reusing residual heat or excess heat and applying it in different ways. This leads us directly into Matt's interview with Andrew Ponick from Antora Energy. They have this kind of interesting approach using carbon bricks to store incredibly high temperature heat and extract it in a couple of different ways. All right.
1: So just to kick things off, I'm being joined by Andrew Ponick, who's the CEO and co-founder of Antora Energy, who's a thermal energy storage system. They're bringing something to market for thermal energy storage, which I've been fascinated by, have done a bunch of videos on, on my channel. So as soon as I heard what they were doing, I just had to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Well, thanks for having me on. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Um,
1: I'd like to kick things off just to learn a little bit more about you specifically. Cause I'm curious, like, how did this all start for you? Like if you go way back, like high school, college, like what drew you to where you are today?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Oregon. I grew up really loving being outdoors, loving the environment. And it was actually in in middle school and high school that I learned about climate change. And it was, it was definitely a a big moment for me where I, I felt like I found my purpose. You know, I, I knew that that was a problem I wanted to work on solving for the rest of my life. And, you know, I, back then, you know, I was having fun making all sorts of little contraptions, you know, I would make, you know, solar concentrators and wind turbines and all, all of this sort of stuff. Uh, uh, as a hobby and uh, had a great time doing that. I, I didn't really have any idea that I would uh, be an entrepreneur or anything like that, but I knew I wanted to work in those areas. I loved science, engineering, math. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I have to say, I didn't really know what engineering was at the time. Uh, you know, there was no engineering <laughs> class, but I knew I loved at least science and math and, and building things. Um, right. And so I, I chose to go to Stanford uh, in for my undergrad in, in part because they had a wonderful energy program. They had so many different classes, not just on the technology sides of energy, but also thinking about policy and economics and all that. And I, I thought that was going to be really important. So I had an absolute blast coming coming to Stanford, taking some classes about energy. I very quickly got into a, a class that worked on electrical engineering and its applications to, the, you know, the, the energy trans or, or the energy shift and and decarbonization. Uh, it was a class called Green Electronics, which was pretty fun and. Very quickly got involved in a, a, a small project in that class that was to make module-level power electronics for solar panels and spun that out into a company within a, a couple of years at, uh, of being at Stanford. So it was quite a whirlwind uh, first couple of years getting uh, out of the house.
1: You did. I, I read that you dropped out of Stanford to start the company. Is that true?
2: I did. I did. Yes, <laughs> uh, definitely. You know I, I sometimes have people ask me like do you think you made the right decision i'm, I'm very confident i do and I've, I've had people ask like you know students say you know do you think i should drop out and i say if, if you're having to decide you should probably stay in school like i felt completely compelled like there was no way i was gonna stay in school rather than pursue this idea i, I was 100 percent committed
1: right and that was dragonfly was that dragonfly yeah uh, this, okay yeah. And yeah. that ended up getting rolled into what was it sun power that's right okay yeah. And so after that, you went back to Stanford, I'm assuming, and then finished out that, and then yes. now you've started in Why thermal energy storage? That's my first question. It's like, what drew you to that as the solution? Did you look at other options that were out there? Like what drew you to that specific one?
2: Yeah, m- probably one of the most fun periods of time I've I've ever had was the process of figuring out what I was going to do next. and And it was not <laughs> clear at the beginning that it was going to be thermal energy storage. So uh, you know, I kind of the the fundamental assumptions that I had, you know, after having been at sun power, I saw how cheap solar was going to get. I saw the trajectory on, on wind as well. It was clear there was going to be an abundance of clean energy, but that was only going to be available some of the time, you know, solar when it's sunny, wind when it's windy. And so uh, I, I knew that we'd have to do something to convert all of that, that new opportunity, this, this cheap, clean energy into all of the other things that we, we need energy for that we need to decarbonize. And the, you know, my, myself and, and, and one of my two co-founders, Justin, we we looked at everything. We looked at every type of way that you could convert this electricity into something useful for decarbonization. A lot of those were, m- most of those were energy storage systems of various kinds, you know, compressed air, you know, batteries, you know, flow batteries, hydrogen, gravitational energy storage. Actually, a lot of things that uh, you've done some really wonderful uh, <laughs> videos about on uh, on your channel. Um, That's awesome. And, you know, through that process, we built little you know, techno-economic models of, of each of them, tried to understand what are the fundamental constraints? What, what might, might we be able to do to improve that in the future? Um, and the, the one that just kept coming back up was thermal energy storage. It had a combination of attributes that we thought were unbeatable for a lot of areas of decarbonization, and, and that's what we uh, eventually settled on.
1: So it sounds like you did a lot of due diligence in researching what was out there before you decided on thermal energy storage.
2: Yeah, I would say I spent the better part of two years looking at all of those wow. different options before settling on thermal energy storage.
1: Wow. So one question I have for you is as, as I've been learning about all this stuff and thermal energy storage feels like I keep having that face palm. Why are we not doing this already pretty much everywhere? Cause it seems so obvious once you kind of learn about it, why aren't we doing this everywhere? <laughs>
2: Already. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I love that question. That is exactly the right question because, like, when you look at the yeah, we we had to second guess ourselves when we were looking at all of this of just like, yeah, wh- wh- why 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 aren't we doing it already everywhere? And there are a couple of reasons for for that. The the, the first is just that we haven't had variable renewable electricity in, in, that that's really really cheap before. So that that is new. That's within the last decade that solar and wind have gotten so cheap. You know, mm-hmm. before that. There wasn't much of a, a purpose to turn electricity into stored heat and then deliver that heat because the starting point, the electricity, was so expensive that it would never be competitive with fossil fuels as a source of heat. So what shifted is the electricity, variable electricity, and that's a really important point. Variable electricity is now so cheap that it can compete directly with fossil fuels as a source of heat. And 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 that wasn't that wasn't there before. The the other thing is thermal energy storage in the past. Was pretty much solely associated with the concentrating solar power industry, and so you know there was lots of you know molten salt energy storage or or, or other similar systems for concentrating solar, but they were all having the input energy be be sunlight, like concentrated sunlight, or or some other uh, type of heat rather than electricity. And again, that's because there was no source of cheap electricity in the past that you would have used to charge up a thermal battery like that, but. One of the, the outcomes of that whole industry of thermal energy storage, having been based out of, of CSP in the past, was that nobody was thinking about temperatures higher than you could get with sunlight concentration. And so once we came at the problem, you know, because of a new driver, which was this cheap electricity, it allowed us to look at the problem kind of from first principles and, you know, not follow the same path that everyone had done in CSP and look for what is the best material if you're starting from electricity.
1: So uh, that kind of brings us to what your technology is. Could you walk through at a high level as like, what is it? Like, how does it work?
2: Yeah. So the basic inputs and outputs are, you know, we have a box and variable electricity comes in and consistent heat and electricity come out. And so it's, it's a giant buffer for that variable renewable energy. And inside the box, you have a lot of graphite. Uh, so this is carbon, same kind of stuff you'd have in pencil lead but th- this carbon gets heated electrically just by resistance heating. So this is ohmic heating. You just run the electricity through carbon, it gets really, really hot. It's storing the heat in the, the, the sensible heat change. So just every degree increase in temperature from the electricity coursing through it is, is um, you know, storing more and more energy. And then on the, the flip side, to get that energy out, we use radiative heat transfer. So there are three types of heat transfer, you know, conv- conductive, convective, radiative. Uh, most thermal energy storage uses either, uh, well, m- most of it really uses convective heat transfer. You know, you like blow some air or you pump some metal or molten metal or, you know, something like that. We went in a very different direction, which is which is radiation, which is light, because it's incredibly simple. You can get rid of a lot of the moving parts. A lot of the ways that thermal energy storage has broken down in the past is from that convective heat transfer and, and just let the light go and, and transfer the heat for you. The key, though, to that is radiative heat transfer only works at very high temperature. Radiative heat transfer scales with temperature to the fourth power. So you double the absolute temperature and you get 16 times as much radiative heat transfer. So at you know low temperatures, like a few hundred C, it's a really weak mechanism of heat transfer. But once you get above a thousand C, it's a really, really powerful way to move heat within the system. Because all those early systems were at low temperature because they were in the CSP industry, radiative heat transfer was a bad idea. Once you got rid of the temperature limitation, cause you're starting with electricity, suddenly radiative heat transfer is the obvious way to move heat within a system like this.
1: Okay. So at, at, in a nutshell, I was standing in front of one of your things, it's, it's yeah. basically just a big metal box and yeah. Yeah. You, you're storing essentially light inside. So it's a, it's a kind of holding the light from the heat. How, how does it actually work when you're letting it out? Like how do you capture it coming out of that
2: box? Yeah, that's right. So you, you can think about it as, as just three levels. There's the, the metal box, like you said, inside that. There's a bunch of insulation so that the heat doesn't leak out when you don't want it to. And then inside that is the the carbon, the graphite that's actually storing that that heat. Right. Uh, so to get it out, what what we basically have is an insulation shutter. So you can just open the insulation, and that will allow the h- very high temperature bright light f- that's coming off of this carbon to suddenly kind of beam out of the system to whatever you needed that, that heat for, or, or that light. For.
1: Right. <laughs> it sounds okay. It sounds so simple. I know it's not simple. I know there's a lot of engineering that goes into this, but it sounds incredibly simple that you're just literally like letting the light out of the box, shutting it off when you don't want to let it out, let it out of the box. And you're using, was it? TPV, mm-hmm. photovoltaic <laughs> cells to capture the, to turn it into electricity. One mm-hmm. of my questions for that is everything I've read says that they're not as um, energy efficient, that they're not great efficiency for converting into electricity. Are yours different or is there a different approach you're taking to it that makes it more efficient?
2: Yeah. Well, maybe I'll just start with, you know, you have this beam of light and you can do two things with it. One is if you just need heat for an industrial process, which we use an enormous amount of fossil fuels to create industrial heat, then you just keep the industrial process, you don't need TPV. If you want that back as electricity, which you do in many cases, then yeah we're 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 shining light on a photovoltaic cell it's the same basic physics that is used in in solar pV but you're just getting the light from a different source, which is this hot carbon so yeah efficiency is is a great place to to start talking about like is this is this a smart thing to do or or not? The first part of that is you're always going to have losses converting heat back to electricity. this is just you know fundamental thermodynamics there's there's a limit to how much you can do Carnot efficiency is going to limit you and in practice, you're gonna be well below the Carnot efficiency in in, in any case. So the the, the first thing is it, it's driven by economics. It's never gonna be the most efficient way to store. The question is, is it economically favorable? And th- the answer that we've seen is in a lot of cases, yes. Even if you're at relatively low efficiency, like fifty percent or even forty percent, if the input electricity was this otherwise wasted, you know, solar and wind that was coming at, at cheap abundant times, and you're then delivering it at a time when electricity is really scarce and really valuable it's okay to have some of that loss as long as your your capital expenditure to build your thermal battery was really really low so if you have an expensive battery that's low efficiency that's a really terrible product if you have a really cheap battery that's really efficient obviously that's that's perfect that that's that's great but we don't have that and so mm-hmm. we're in kind of one of the corners which is really really cheap but less efficient right
1: yeah. It's, I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I've, I see in comments on YouTube videos that I put together a lot of people hammer on efficiency. Like it's the ultimate thing to discuss. It's the thing that determines if it's good or bad. Well, lithium ion batteries, they're 95% efficient or 20, 92% efficient. Why would you want to do this? It's like, well, lithium ion batteries probably cost 10 times the amount of money as that would cost. So it's it's money drives the decision-making here. Yes. So it's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I kind of look at it as, a, as kind of a, a red herring a little bit. It sounds like you kind of agree with that kind of point of view of it's not the end all be all. It's just part of the
2: equation, but not the ultimate purveyor. A- absolutely. And, and a good example of that is in our grid today, we have a lot of power plants that are fueled by natural gas. Some of them are combined cycle gas plants that are over 50% efficient. Some of them are peaker plants that are like 25% efficient. We Still install tons of both of them, even though one is twice the efficiency of the other, just because the simple cycle ones are really, really, really cheap, and so they're just serving a different niche within the grid than the the combined cycle plants.
1: Okay, so you can get the you can get heat out and you can get electricity out. So it's kind of a I don't want to say it's platform agnostic or something. That's not the right way to put it, but it it can you can fit pretty much any need you need to for what you're putting it into. But I'm assuming your target market. Initially is going to be after industry, the high heat industries, things like cement, yeah, you know, steel making, things like that. I'm assuming that's where you're focused.
2: That's right. So the the first product that we're deploying is a heat only product, so one okay. that is just delivering industrial heat. The second product is one that does heat and or electricity, depending on what the customers need and needs are. And one one thing that I'll mention about why it's so important to have heat and electricity in, in, in the future coming out of this product. Industry uses both. I mean, if you, if you look, there's almost no industri- major industrial process that uses either only electricity or only heat. Almost everything uses, uses both to varying degrees. About 10% of US electricity is generated from combined heat and power plants at industrial sites. So like industry is already very used to using things that provide both heat and electricity. Uh, to to their site. So this is a a massive, massive business. But the the key thing about having both is that flexibility to choose when you're going to do electricity versus when you're going to do heat is a big economic advantage. Because there are going to be certain times in the future, you know, let's say we have a very high renewables penetration grid, there are going to be times in January, you know, when it's not very sunny, and it hasn't been for a few days, that electricity is going to be super, super valuable. And with this sort of system, you can, you know, divert all of the the stored energy into generating electricity during those times. There might be other times in the summer when energy is plentiful. You know, there's tons of solar that might have otherwise been spilled. At that point, you can be shoving it into your thermal battery and taking it out as electricity and heat. And so having that flexibility on the economics makes a system that can do electricity and heat more valuable than one that does just one or the other. Right.
1: How, how, how. We'll get, I want to get into the inside of the box in just a second, but like, how do the costs of this look like, like compared to, I'm I'm thinking like, like one of these a steel making plant, like whatever they're using for their fuel, if it's natural gas, whatever they're using to heat right now, how does this look competitively for costs for them? Like, will it save them money? It's like, that's the big question I'm assuming they're all looking at.
2: Yeah. So it it's the, the economics of the system are very dependent on where the input energy is coming from. So there is certainly some portion of the cost of the delivered, let's say we're just doing a a heat product for a moment, some portion of the cost of the delivered heat comes from paying back the capex, the capital expenditure of the unit itself. But in most cases, the bulk of the cost comes from the intermittent electricity that you're feeding into the unit. And, And that is very geography dependent. So many of our early markets are in places like the U.S. Midwest, where you have an enormous amount of wind that's been built out over the last decade and in some of those areas there's actually too much really for the grid to handle in certain areas there are places on the grid in Kansas or Texas where electricity prices are negative 30% of the time which is just mind-boggling to think nuts. About that. and and so in in places like that this can be insanely competitive because you're taking you know what's essentially a, a free electricity and then turning it into heat only having to pay back the the capex of the of the battery now right. in other places you know if you were to do this in you know, Massachusetts right now, maybe there isn't a, a surplus of renewables in those areas. That's probably not going to be a market for us for some time unless somebody's willing to pay a premium to decarbonize. But we're probably right. not going to be directly competing against fossil fuels in every market right off the bat. So it de- depends on the scenario then. Yes. Okay.
1: So let's go inside inside the box. <laughs> These carbon blocks what are they? <laughs> like, like, what, how, how do you, what are they made of? How do you sort, I oh, I mean, I they're made of carbon, but like, how, how are they made? How do you source them? Like, how do they, <laughs> what is the theoretical, like highest temperature that you're able to store in this, in this battery?
2: Yeah. I've learned so much and loved learning so much about the, the whole carbon and graphite industry over the, the last few years. Carbon and, and graphite are one of the biggest industrial intermediates that you've probably never thought much about, but <laughs> Uh, graphite and carbon are essential in the way we produce both steel and aluminum. So uh, in steel making, for instance, a huge portion of our steel comes from electric arc furnaces. And electric arc furnaces use giant graphite rods that are, uh, have energy running through them to, to heat up the steel where they're actually creating like lightning at the, at the bottoms of these rods, you know, it, it going to the steel. The ends of those rods get up to like 2000 C or more. And so graphite is one of the only materials you could use for something like that. So a, there's a huge industry to make graphite that all just gets consumed in the process of steelmaking. Similarly, for aluminum, we make something like 30 million metric tons a year of carbon blocks for the aluminum industry, because the way we make aluminum is we dissolve aluminum oxide into sort of an aluminum salt, and then we do electrolysis on it. We run electricity through it. The only material that can survive that, those conditions is carbon. And so they actually use carbon as one of the, as the anode for the aluminum uh, producing process. And that gets consumed in the process. During the electrolysis, the oxygen coming off the aluminum oxide combines with the carbon in the block and goes out as CO2. And so because these blocks are consumed, the more aluminum we make, the more carbon blocks we have to make. So anyway, this is just to say there's a massive industry that's existing that makes giant carbon or, or graphite blocks. And that's no accident because we wanted to choose a material that already had a massively built out supply chain for whatever material we were going to use, because a lot of startups fail because they think they have the greatest material. But then if they have to do all of that work themselves, they're not going to scale fast enough. Yeah. So this is this is a, a little bit about graphite. As you can see, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of this material.
1: Yeah, that's it, one of the things I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of companies, battery startups, things like that. And they're like, we have the best battery in the world. It's like, well, how, what what's the materials in it? It's like, it's all the stuff that's in it. Are very hard, hard to source and there's no uh, supply chain established for it. So it's like, they've got a long road ahead of them if they want to start building this out of scale. So you really are just tapping into an existing supply chain market that already exists. is already capable of producing this stuff for you Yes, at whatever scale you're going to need into the future.
2: Yeah. I think some, something like 1% of the global carbon and graphite industry would enable like a terawatt a year of energy storage deployments using our system. So like oh my God. we can get a <laughs> massive scale with still being a drop in the bucket in this existing supply chain.
1: Oh my God. So do you, that's incredible. You have pilot projects going on right now. Is that true?
2: Yeah. We're almost ready to turn on our first pilot project, which is in the Central Valley of California at a, a customer site, a company named Wellhead Electric, and we're very excited to be turning on our first system.
1: And it's a, it's a heat-only system. That's what it's going to be
2: used as, is heat. So it's it's a prototype of, of the heat-only system, of the heat-only product, but we actually have the ability to test both the electric discharge portion and the heat discharge portion, but we're only doing the electric discharge portion for internal testing purposes because the first product will be the, the thermal only. But we have the ability to do both on that unit. Partly just to show that we can, uh, which is an important part of our our long-term roadmap, to be able to take the same unit and get either heat or electricity on demand.
1: Uh, Speaking of that long-term roadmap, I did have a question around that. Where do you see Entora going over the next three to five years? Like, how do you see this rollout happening? How do you see it expanding?
2: Yeah. So the 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 next couple years are going to be all about getting to market with that first, you know, heat only product, um, largely in the areas that are the absolute best economics for something like this, where we're very competitive against fossil fuels. So this would be, you know, West Kansas, or, you know, it's a a place that has a ton of excess wind, you know, we're going to be delivering to an industrial heat process, you know, the next couple of years after that. So, you know, through from kind of 2025 to 2027 is all going to be about expansion, you know, throughout the US and maybe North American market with that heat product. So not just going after the the absolute, uh, you know, cream of the crop as far as, you know, best places to do this, but really getting into, you know, a- across the board, anywhere where there's pretty decent economics, we want to be deploying and reducing fossil fuel usage. During that time is also when we'll be piloting the the unit that can do both heat and electricity. And so at the end of about a, a four-year cycle here, we should be ready to start deploying in, in large numbers, the heat and electricity product. So it's kind of a, a one, two punch over the next four years of that. Gotcha. Are there
1: any partnerships that you can talk about, or is it still kind of like too early days to talk about that
2: kind of stuff? Uh, th- there are a couple that w- we'll probably be able to talk about soon, but I'll, I'll just say, you know there, there's the type of partnership that is going to be really important mm-hmm. for this is to partner with those that can produce the variable renewable electricity that would charge these systems up. So that's very much on our mind. We want to be able to uh, find either existing assets that have a lot of curtailment or negative electricity prices or new units that are being built where we can essentially improve the economics of the plant as a whole by saying, we're willing to take the dregs. We're willing to take the worst-priced electricity that your system will ever produce. Give it Mm -hmm. to us. We don't care when it comes because that's our whole point. We're, We're energy storage. And then you can sell only the, the high value electricity uh, to the grid. And so that we think will actually allow significantly more deployment of solar and wind in places that otherwise would have been capped because the, the penetration was already really high in those areas.
1: How, how is the, like, I always like asking this question of everybody, like, what's the reaction that you're getting as you're bringing this to market? Because from the outside looking in, you look at the major in- industry players and utilities and, you know, steel makers and stuff like that doesn't seem like an industry that wants to necessarily go carbon neutral or to go clean. Do you see that shifting? Do you see that there's a change there that they do want to go clean and they're, and they're receptive to that message, or are they just focused on the bottom line? They only care about the money. It's like, what are you saying?
2: It's been an incredible shift over the last two years. You know, if, if you'd asked me that question two years ago, or maybe three years ago, I would have said, yep, it's a hundred percent bottom line. Nobody cares whether it's, you know, clean or, or not. Just like show me the numbers. Now we are getting a totally different response, which is of course people still want to do the you know have the have the numbers be good, but yeah. people are willing to you know look at technologies that are an earlier stage. People are willing to try something that's out of their comfort zone because they really do care about beyond just the numbers, doing the right thing for the planet, or at the very least, if you're cynical, doing the right thing for you know the the, the companies uh, or people's perception of their of their industry or, or, or their company. So one way or another, people really do care about this. And that is not, that has not been how it's been for, you know, many years. That's
1: awesome. So for thermal energy storage is another kind of general market question I have for you on your take on this. Since I talked about how it's like the face palm, why are we not doing this already? What do you think the scale and the size of a thermal energy storage market is going to look like? Because obviously, it's not the solution for everything. It's not like you're going to be getting one of these for your house because it's not going to work for something like that. But like, w- how do you see this being for like market scale? Like, how big of a player is it going
2: to be? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm obviously biased. I mean, I, I, yeah. I spent a few years <laughs> trying to figure it's... out what I thought was going to happen, and, and this is what I this is what I what I thought. But but I'll, I'll still say like. I'm increasingly convinced that this is going to be the solution for industrial heat, you know, full stop. Like every everywhere that we use industrial heat, you're gonna the cheapest way to do that in the future is going to be to have variable renewable electricity and and thermal energy storage. I I certainly believe that Antora is going to be the the leader of the pack of the many companies that are doing this for a variety of reasons, but. I have no doubt that that is gonna be how we decarbonize industrial heat. There's nothing else that comes close from an economics perspective to thermal energy storage when it comes to delivering that that quantity of heat. What are the three things
1: that keep you at, up at night or worry you about this energy transition and energy storage? Like what are the three things that kind of keep you awake?
2: Yeah. I, I think the the one of the biggest things that we need to solve and, and everybody in this market needs to solve is uh, the financing aspect you know the the the, the flows of money that are going to have to come into this industry to to build out all of the all the solar all the wind but also all of the electrical energy storage lithium ion storage and, and thermal energy storage that's going to be needed is is mind-boggling I mean these are these are huge flows of money and you know we we have a pretty good roadmap that was developed over the last decade or two by solar and wind, just showing how you can get from a niche player in the energy industry to something that really is doing hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of of deployments globally. And, and so I think we can do that, but we need to shorten the time. It can't be 20 years from now that, you know, a a really big finance player says, oh yeah, if I want to get a a, a guaranteed return on some capital, one of the safest things to do is to go and, you know, put the money in a thermal energy storage system. That's where we need to get long term to, to make this energy transition happen. So it's something we spend a lot of time on. Some of the solutions to that are engineering solutions. Some of it's just we need to show that this system absolutely bulletproof. It's going to be very reliable, you know, very bankable. That that's how we're going to get access to those capital flows. But a lot of it's also, you know, non-engineering stuff. It's understanding the markets, understanding the the types of agreements that we're going to have with off takers, with electricity suppliers, so that you're reducing the risk to a financier of the project as a whole, not just the technology that's being provided by Antora. So this is a, you know, probably if there is one thing that, that I don't know if it worries me, but that I, that is a, a huge undertaking for us and everyone else is like how to get to that point that this is a, a turn the crank financing operation. What's the, what's the one thing that you're most optimistic about? I am incredibly optimistic because of the number of wonderful companies and smart people that are flooding into this space energy storage in general, decarbonization in general, thermal energy storage in particular, like it's, it's so inspiring to see how many people are, you know, quitting their jobs at Google and Facebook and stuff like that and saying, I am all in on clean energy. This is what I want to do with my life. I I think that's how we're going to get to the solution here. I love that.
1: That's why I make the videos I make. I'm inspired by what people like you are doing. It's like, that gets me so excited for the future. Uh, is, th- is there anything we haven't touched on about your technology and your company and what you're doing that you'd want to bring up?
2: Well, I, I, I didn't fully answer your question about TPV and efficiency yeah. earlier, and that was right, un- yeah. unintentional. So <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, I, you know, for my own personal sense of pride, I want to be the kind of person that fully answers questions that are asked of me. So um, <laughs> you, you would ask, I'm not, that wasn't a politician's answer to try to, you know, sk- skirt around it. Um, you ask about like, what's, what's the efficiency of TPV? Yeah. Is it good or bad? You know, what is Antora's efficiency? Is it good or bad compared to other options? So, you know, I talked a little bit about the economics, like what, what efficiency is needed in, in various applications, but let's talk about the actual efficiency. So a TPV is PV. I mean, it is a photovoltaic device that, that takes in photons and, and outputs electrons. Typical solar photovoltaics are about 20% efficient. And even more than that, the efficiency limits for a single junction, at least, the solar photovoltaic, the shockley queisser limit is about 33%. So you can't do better than that. Now, if you ask like, why can you not do better than 33% with any even, you know, perfectly imagined single junction photovoltaic? The reason is because there's a huge number of photons that don't have enough energy to create an electron in the semiconductor. So these are photons that came at you from the sun they don't have enough energy they just go right through your semiconductor they don't get absorbed because they don't have uh, energy above the band gap. So this is a big loss mechanism. You know I'm very familiar with this from from my background in solar. We can do something in TPV that's really unique that you can't do in solar photovoltaics which is we can recycle any of the photons that we didn't like that we couldn't convert. So our just like the sun our hot graphite is emitting some good photons, photons that will generate electrons. And a bunch of bad photons along with it that are too low energy. So rather than losing them, just like in solar, they don't get absorbed by a photovoltaic material, but we put a really good infrared mirror on the back of our cells, which just turns those photons right around, sends them right back to the graphite that they came from, where they get reabsorbed. So that energy, rather than being lost, is recycled within the system. (laughs) <laughs> and this is, this is crazy. Like if you talk to any solar engineer, it's like, what if you just didn't have to worry about the losses for below banding of photons? It's like, wow, well that make, makes my job a lot easier. And that, that's basically what, what thermophotovoltaics can do. And the, the result of that is we've already demonstrated over 40% efficiency of wow. a single junction thermophotovoltaic, which again, in solar world is actually like fundamentally disallowed by the Shockley Chrysler limit, but in TPV, cause you can do this recycling process it's absolutely possible. And we expect to be over 50% in the future. So wow. it's a very efficient way to convert heat into electricity. You know, I mean, if you compare, you know, the largest steam turbines in the world are usually around 40 or slightly over. Most steam turbines that are a little smaller are in the 30s. Um, so we already have a photovoltaic cell that's a better heat engine than a steam turbine. And that's after only just a couple of years of work. <laughs>
1: I was gonna say we t- we talked about how, like if e- efficiency is kind of a red herring, but this is actually where efficiency is actually amazing. Here, it's like that you're you're already competitive to steam turbines, and you're yeah. expecting that to get even better. That's that's incredible. I love the fact that you can reflect the basically heat energy right back in, and that you don't need. And that's so in that double use scenario, then that extends how much heat you're able to get out of the entire thing because you're you're taking what you need for the electricity generation, and then the rest can stay in there as heat. That's right. Okay. Wow. That's, that's, that's incredible. I I love this.
2: (laughs) I absolutely love this. I'll I'll say, you know, we, we weren't the first people to think of this actually uh, an advisor of us, of ours is a guy named Dick Swanson, who is one of the, the, you know, kind of founders of the solar industry. He founded, founded SunPower, you know, he was doing this all the way back in 1979, I believe and he realized that you could do this sort of reflection process and get very high efficiencies. But that was at a time that solar PV technology was really, really rudimentary. It was just, just getting off the ground. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have the kinds of materials and techniques that we have available to us now, but it was already seen back then that there would be a tremendous amount of promise in, in this sort of way of doing things. I'll also just mention, you, you know, you, you could do this back. You can reflect photons back to the sun too, and in, in a really strict sense, you could, you could say that your efficiency is hotter or, or is higher if you were able to make sure those photons went directly back to the sun. But like, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a closed system with the sun. And so like, nobody's going to give you credit for having given the sun back a few photons. And so like, that's the fundamental difference between TPV and, and PV is nobody cares if you make the sun hotter, but it absolutely matters that we keep our carbon hotter in, in our system thanks for
1: calling out that this has been going on, this research and the knowledge of doing stuff like this has been around for a long time. That's something I, I also like to hit on is it takes time to bring these things to maturity sometimes, because it's, it's not that we don't know how to do it. We just may not know how to do it as efficiently, or there might be one little missing piece that we're waiting for. And then something happens that just unlocks all that stuff we already knew. Yeah. So we have to be this is a call out to anybody that's listening and watching this you just have to be patient yeah. sometimes yeah. with the development of these technologies yeah so so, th- so it sounds like we have all the pieces in place at this point to make this a really viable option
2: thermal energy storage as a whole like all the pieces are in place for this to be the solution for industrial decarbonization right so it,
1: if you're looking at that like hockey stick curve of growth we're right at the beginning of that hockey stick absolutely absolutely awesome well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you t- taking the time to talk to me and give me all the details about your technology and what you're doing and, and yourself as well. It's fascinating hearing about your background as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you so much. This was really fun. I appreciate the conversation and, and again, b- big fan of the show. So excited to keep watching.
0: Thanks. Thank you to Andrew for taking the time to talk to Matt and thank you all for checking out this conversation. Listeners, what do you think? Let us know in the comments, you can jump into the comments below this video on YouTube or you can reach out through the podcast description, wherever it was, you found this video. Don't forget when you're going back, wherever you found this video or the podcast that you're listening to leave a review, share it with your friends. Don't forget to subscribe. All of that really does help. And also don't forget to check out undecided with Matt Farrell, which is our mothership. It starts our conversations. Usually although we're breaking the model this week, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to stilltbd.fm click on the, become a supporter button there, or you can go to the join button on YouTube. Both of those allow you to throw coins at our heads. We appreciate the welts. And then we make these fascinating conversations. Don't we, Matt? Oh yes, of course. (laughs) All of these are great ways to help support the channel. Thank you so much everybody for taking time out of your day to listen or watch. And we'll talk to you next time.